This week on the Discover the Word podcast, Dr. Esau McCauley joins the group. Dr. McCauley is author of the award-winning book, Reading While Black. I think we have to be humble enough to recognize that we need other people to read the Bible well. Mm -hmm. That no culture is competent in and of itself. Mm -hmm. We need the whole body of Christ working together to understand this. Because if you don't think that like our Bible reading is influenced by even me, is we're in one of the most powerful nations in the world. We have all of these resources. If you don't think this influences the way in which we read the Bible, then just have someone from Uganda or Kenya or another place come and tell us about how we don't see how much the Bible speaks about our materialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we just have to be humble enough to recognize that we need each other to read the Bible well. And so be part of the group for a series of conversations about reading hope with the black church on this Discover the Word podcast. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And in this podcast, the group you'll be interacting with includes regular members, Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day, as well as one of our co-workers here at Our Daily Bread Ministries, Rasul Berry. Rasul pastors a church in Brooklyn, and he's also done work with our video team and content group, as well as with our church engagement team, and of course with us here on Discover the Word. He's been part of a number of weeks of conversations over the last couple of years, and he will be at times moving forward as well. And our guest this week then is Dr. Esau McCauley, who is professor of New Testament at Wheaton College and has written that award-winning book I mentioned, Reading While Black. Uh, In this series, Esau reveals some insights into biblical passages that emerge when we examine their importance in nurturing hope throughout the African-American Christian experience. Like peeling back layers of an onion, these conversations will help us discover how Engaging with believers from different cultural backgrounds can offer us greater understanding of Scripture than we would acquire just on our own. And so let's listen as Daniel gets us started on this week that we're calling Reading Hope with the Black Church. So Esau, one of the reasons I'm excited about this book is because just the title of the book that I received a copy of caught me off guard. Hmm. The title of your book is Reading While Black. And my first initial reaction to that is, that doesn't sound right because we should be reading the Bible neutrally, right? Like we shouldn't be reading it while black or while white. We should just read the Bible. But I think there's actually something to this that the more I've thought about it, the more I've been challenged by it. Yeah. One of the things I always have to say is to people need to like, honestly, just like calm down for a second <laughs> and, listen to, <laughs> and listen to what I'm saying. So let me give you an example. Do you remember that book that came out called The Celtic Way of Evangelism? Vaguely, yes. Mm-hmm. Like everybody just bought that book and said, oh, yeah, this is great. There is a way that the Celts evangelize, and this is fine. Mm. There's this other thing that we call, I mean, there's this thing called Anglophiles, people who just love British culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and we talk about like British understatement and British humor, which we say is different from other humor. So those are like non-biblical examples. Let me give you like a theological example. Whenever you want to talk about the Reformation mm-hmm. and Luther, we place Luther in context. We talk about what's going on in Germany, his background, what it meant for him to be a monk. And we talk about all the ways in which the unique culture of Germany led to his unique theological insights. Mm. And so we understand that like our culture and our experiences create different temperaments that influence how we see the world. And on that matter, you know, Esau, we've had many conversations around the table about misreading scripture with Western eyes, how we bring our Western understanding to an Eastern text and how we miss some of what's in the passage. So maybe there's a way in which um, white readers inadvertently, we don't even know, read scripture through a white lens. And you're saying perhaps we need to understand too what it means to read with a black lens. Is that fair? Yeah. And and it's also like we've had missionaries who come from overseas and say, hey, you Westerners, you're reading this all wrong. And we kind of go, yeah, thank you, missionary. (laughs) um, Thank you, international person. And this is the other thing I want to press in. I want people to understand what I mean when I talk about reading while black. When you have a text in front of you, and we've all done this, and we're saying, okay, I'm going to preach this text to a youth group. (laughs) And I'm thinking in particular, how does this passage speak 
to the experiences of 14 to 18 year olds. Mm -hmm. Now, what tends to happen once you begin to populate your mind with that group, you notice things that are actually in the text that you just hadn't considered before. If you're then doing a wedding or if you're speaking to a in a retirement home, you can have the same passage of the Bible in front of you. But once you begin to populate in your mind, the audience you're thinking about, it doesn't change the meaning of the text. It helps you to, to see neglected aspects of the text. Mm, yeah. Now think about this. It's 1965. And you're thinking, um, I need to preach a passage to an all-black congregation mm. pushing back on segregation. And you're reading the Bible, and this is your audience. Versus you have the same passage in front of you, and you have a all-white pro-segregation audience. The same text is going to lead to different kinds of sermons. Mm. And so this idea that no experiences or no audiences influence the way that we interpret the Bible is simply dishonest. Anybody who's preached and you move from one congregation to the other congregation, simply being around different kinds of people, being in different parts of the country influences how you talk about text. So I'm not talking about that being black changes the meaning of the Bible. Hmm. What I'm saying is that the collective experiences, ethos, and culture of African-American Christians, which is themselves diverse, create a disposition towards reality that may allow us to see things in text that other people neglect. And let me give you an example of this. (laughs) So this is the segue. When you think about the 12 tribes of Israel, what tends to come to your mind? A messed up family that uh, struggled (laughs) to get along often at times. And uh, where did these the 12 leaders of the tribes come from? They were descendants of Jacob. Were they all his sons? Uh, No, only 10 of them are his sons. Two of them are Joseph's sons. Okay, so two of them are Joseph's sons. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 48. And somebody want to read just Genesis 48, 1 down to... Let's read down to five. Can we go down to verse five? Okay, yeah. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of people and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. So here's the question. Why does Jacob decide to adopt these two boys? It's right there in the text. So I'm already confused because I don't understand the context of how that would even happen because they're Joseph's kids. So would you flesh out a little bit about what's the cultural context here that like would even make that a thing? So he is bringing these two boys into his family and giving them inheritance rights that could accrue to them. So like these are Joseph's boys, but he's given them a land inheritance in Israel. Is it because in verse four, he's going to make him fruitful and multiply? Yeah, but it's not just fruitful and multiply. It's not just that. You see that phrase community of peoples? Oh, community. Yeah, I just said that. That is different ethnic groups. Do you remember this goes Mm. all the way back? Remember Abraham, the father of many nations? Mm -hmm. And so the promise that God makes to Abraham It's repeated to Isaac, and then it goes to Jacob. And so the idea is that God wasn't just going to bless Israelites. He's going to bless all the different nations of the world. Hmm. So then when he sees that one of his sons is married to an African woman from Egypt, and these are two then multi-ethnic boys, he sees in their Egyptianness wow. the fact that they're Egyptian, the fulfillment of God's promises. And he says, you know what? For this reason, I'm going to bring you into mm. my family because it was always God's plan mm. to make me a community of people. So when we typically read this, you're suggesting, Esau, we might miss that whole community piece, the many nations piece. We might think about numbers of people rather yes. than varieties of people. Yes. And he's making the explicit point about ethnicity here. Mm. It's the fact that they're Egyptian. He says it. Now, these two boys who were born to you in Egypt. So when we think of 
Israel. We should think of two of the 12 tribes as having half African ancestors at the very beginning of the nation of Israel. So Israel was always a multi-ethnic nation from the beginning. I'm talking about from the beginning of the 12 tribes, you have God's vision for multi-ethnicity outlined. And not only that, it's Africans in particular. Mm. So then when you come to a congregation and historically they say, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion and I'm a black person who follows Jesus. And I'm trying to say, I go to the Bible. Is it true that God didn't really care about the African peoples of the world? Then I am going to, as a motivated reader, make a lot yeah. of this passage. <clears throat> it's not a distortion of the meeting. It's just the, the fact that I'm asking this question. How does God value my ethnicity? Mm. When I bring that question to the text and then I come across this, I'm going to lift it up. Someone who might not be motivated to think in those terms might ignore it. And so when I say reading while black, it means I'm bringing the particular questions that my culture asked to the text, and that doesn't change the meaning. This is the important part. It helps me to bring out neglected readings. That's so good. Now, could yeah. anybody have seen this point? Yes. Are there white writers and scholars who've seen this point? Yes, they have. But every time I've shown this passage to an African-American, they've been like, <laughs> I can't believe it. This is amazing. And it's a tremendous encouragement to them. And so when I talk about reading while black, I'm trying to get at the particular questions that we bring to the biblical text and the way that the biblical text speaks to our concerns in a particular way. That's so good. And, um, you know, it reminds me, you know, Elisa, you mentioned the authors of misreading scripture through Western eyes. One of the things they say in their book is biblical interpretation is a cross-cultural experience. Yeah. yeah. So, for example, up until recently, when you read that word nations, we might tend to think of political states that are mostly based on these kind of arbitrary boundaries as opposed to ethnic groups that God particularly, you know, wants to see brought to himself. And that's just something that we bring as a result of where we are in history. Is that kind of what some of what you're talking about, Esau? Yeah. And I think we have to be humble enough to yeah. recognize that we need other people to read the Bible well. Mm -hmm. That no culture is competent in and of itself. If people read the book, I said, like, African-American interpretation is one particular manifestation. We also need Ugandan interpretation and Kenyan interpretation, and we need people from Canada. The whole point is mm -hmm. we need the mm -hmm. whole body of Christ working together to understand this because everybody is screened out. If you don't think that, like, our Bible reading is influenced by even me, is we're in one of the most powerful nations in the world. We have all of these resources. If you don't think this influences the way in which we read the Bible, then just have someone from Uganda or Kenya or another place come and tell us about how we don't see how much the Bible speaks about our materialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we just have to be humble enough to recognize that we need each other to read the Bible well. And it's okay, and this is the other part, it's okay to acknowledge the fact Yet historically, the African-American Christian tradition, because of its experiences of slavery, because of its experiences of Jim Crow, had to develop unique arguments about the worth of black bodies and black souls that were actually then yeah. used yes. to change the culture. Mm -hmm. And they were pushing back on interpretations from the dominant culture. So we did develop a distinctive way of reading the Bible, because if you would have asked people in the 1800s and the 1900s, what's the plain reading of the text? They would say, the Bible says that black people are inferior because of the curse of Ham, and that they should be enslaved. And so, like, when we said, no, the Bible says this about who we are, this is why, this was literally an African-American interpretation. Hmm. And so to claim that that didn't exist and that the legacy of that didn't carry forward into our churches is just being dishonest. And sometimes it feels like it is only African-Americans who aren't allowed to have distinctive contributions. Hmm. When we could talk about, like, German theology, we talk about British evangelicalism versus American evangelicalism versus Canadian evangelicalism as just popular language that exists in the world. And so I think we have to be comfortable with allowing African-Americans to not be separated, but to have unique contributions that they offer to the wider body of Christ. Amen. I think when we do that, it brings out to me Ephesians 4 when it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Like it takes a collective effort for us to read the Bible well and apply it well. Yeah. Bottom line, we need each other. Yeah. There it is. Yeah, we need the body. An eye-opening insight about the 12 tribes of Israel that leads off our conversation with Dr. Esau McCauley. 
You're listening to the Discover the Word podcast with Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasula Berry, and our special guest, Dr. Esau McCauley. Our series is titled Reading Hope with the Black Church. And in this next segment, we're going to venture into an area with Esau that has probably always been sensitive, but in the last few years has become even more of a subject of debate. And so let's listen to Esau gets us right into it with this question. So I have a question. Do you think it's okay for a Christian to ever publicly criticize someone who's in office? You mean like a politician? or A, a politician or something. And how do you know when you should and when you shouldn't? I'll just be real. Even that question makes me feel uncomfortable these days. <laughs> I think maybe we should, but I have a tendency not to mm. out loud because I feel like every time that I even try to broach that subject with someone, it goes off the rails real quick or people feel like I'm being offensive or partisan or something. So I'll be honest, I'm uncomfortable critiquing, even though I know I probably should critique. Why would you say that you probably should? Because things that are wrong should be called out, but I don't know that I feel very clear often in how to do that effectively without causing someone to maybe miss maybe the message about Jesus because they know I'm a Christian and they hear me critiquing this and so they mix that together or something like that and it causes more problems than than not. And there's an important assumption there, and this is not mm-hmm. to push back too much on you. You said that you're afraid that they might miss Jesus. That presumes like that Jesus himself didn't have something to say about power and yeah. money and concern for the poor. And so when you say, yeah. I want them to Jesus, it seemed to me that you were saying, I want them to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Now, listen, I'm yeah. on team personal Lord and Savior, so don't get me wrong. I repent <laughs> of your sins, be baptized, you know, walk yeah. in the holiness of life. But there is a sense in which, like, to read the Gospels yeah. and to not see that part of, and to, like, edit that out because we think that's more acceptable is already making a decision. But I'm saying, yeah. so it's interesting that you say, well, I don't want them to miss Jesus. And this is what well, it depends on, like, what you mean by that. Because Jesus was political, is what you're saying. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But see, I think that's where I'm going to need a little help. And maybe that'll be good in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Because when I think of how Jesus critiqued, I often think of him critiquing the religious establishment, but being more quiet about the government. Like, I think of where he, you know, says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But then when he talks about like intense critique, he goes after those who are in kind of religious leadership. Sorry, you forgot the um, other half of that verse. <laughs> well, call me out on it, man. No, no, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so this is the free part of the yeah. podcast. When the people came to Jesus, and this is one of the more misinterpreted passages in the New Testament. When the people came to Jesus and they were trying to trap Jesus. And the idea is, do you pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus Mm -hmm. had two options. If Jesus says, no, you don't pay taxes, then they were going to report Jesus to the authorities. And then they were going to, you know, get rid of him that way. If Jesus said, yes, you pay taxes, then the people who saw him as this Jewish leader were going to say, oh, you're just like everybody else. So the interpretation that Jesus says, yeah, just pay your taxes, makes it seem like the Pharisees actually won the argument. They had Jesus in a binary. Jesus told the pay your taxes binary. But why were people so impressed by that? That's an interesting question. If this was just a straightforward Jesus is saying, just pay your taxes, why would people go, oh, this is a really wise statement when like the pay your taxes option was one of the two that was on there? Yeah. So I'm reading this now, uh, Matthew chapter 22. And uh, let's see if you go down to verse 21. It says, they said Caesar's when he's asked who to likeness is on the inscription. And he said, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. Yeah, so why is paying your taxes amazing? (laughs) Because you have to understand a little bit about Roman coinage. On the back of the Roman coins, it would have Caesar, son of God. And so for a devout Jew to have a coin Hmm. that had Caesar claiming divine status would have itself been idolatrous. So Jesus, first of all, flexed on him. He said, I don't got the money. Who has the coin? They had the coin. Hmm. <laughs> and wow. he says, whose likeness is on it? They say, hmm. well, then give Caesar back that which is his. So that's his money. Give him back his money. Fine. But then there's the alternative. Who give to God that which is God? So what bears God's stamp? Hmm. 
people. Mm-hmm. So he's saying mm-hmm. that if Caesar can make some claim about the money that he prints, then mm. God has a claim about that which he made, which is the entirety of the person. Wow. Rather than simply saying that Christians should stay out of politics, he is saying that God makes a more totalizing claim on you than simply giving you money. He is saying that God expects the entirety of your life to be devoted to him. And if the entirety of your life is devoted to Jesus, then you're going to be a problem to Caesar, just not in the way that Caesar expects. So with Christian resistance isn't simply a matter of do we pay our taxes or not. It's living in a way that calls into question the entire value structure Hmm. of the empire. And that's what Jesus is getting at in that passage. But the question beneath that, though, I think that you are correct. And maybe we should have some other people join in. That there is a danger that the church would become merely partisan. That we're just taking sides in a culture war and we're just representatives of one political party or the other. And I think that might be what gives us cause to fear. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and I think there are instances where it seems a bit more clear-cut where we would champion it. For example, I live in New York. Uh, A few years ago, a mayor issued a ruling that stated that churches could no longer meet in schools, which is a huge issue because a lot of, especially church plants, don't have buildings and they rent space in schools. And a lot of churches ended up protesting that decree and then when the new mayor took over, he essentially rescinded it unofficially, like churches meet in buildings now. When I think of something like that, I think it'd be hard pressed for someone to say, oh, the churches were wrong for criticizing the mayor for not allowing us to gather in public spaces. But then there are other things that feel a bit more dicey to kind of wade into. So I think we kind of select maybe. I think that one of the hard parts about living in an internet culture is the endless news cycle. Mm. And it's like every week there's something that you feel like you're called to be mad about. And I have other stuff to do. I teach the Bible. So I can't get up on every (laughs) single issue, have an opinion, (laughs) and then a policy that I want people to implement. But I do think that even if you're not competent to weigh in on like policy, I think the church ought to feel like, or a pastor ought to feel like he has the competence to speak about injustice, because that's something that you see Hmm. throughout the scriptures. And to say that, like, the prophets, for example, in the Old Testament never spoke about injustice, or even in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the amazing things that you see in the book of James, James chapter 5, where James talks about the wage workers, the day workers, the wage laborers, not receiving fair pay from the people who own the land. And he says, Mm -hmm. God's going to judge you for that. So even in the New Testament, we have people writing letters dealing with issues like paying your workers. When you turn to things like the book of Revelation, where he talks about Rome is described as Babylon. This is important. When Rome is called Babylon, he is saying that the current government of Rome is a type of Babylon. In Mm -hmm. other words, there's a kind of government system that exists in opposition to God's people that repeats itself three times. So when he links Rome to Babylon, he is saying they're engaging in the kinds of policies that bring God's judgment. And when he then talks about that, he talks about, this is in the book of Revelation, their exploitative trade, where they make themselves wealthy at the expense of other nations, their persecution of Christians, so they're they're in trouble for that, and they're also in trouble for the sale of human beings and slaves. And so you see in the Bible, literally in the New Testament itself, unambiguous engagement in issues dealing with mistreatment of the people who are vulnerable. And, you know, if we could, this is so good. You know, Issa, I think your big idea is that Scripture doesn't say separate ourselves from ever mm-hmm. criticizing for justice and mercy the authorities when we need to speak out in the name of Jesus, because he did. But I'm mindful as we're talking about this of brothers and sisters who actually have felt called to serve in government and serve in politics and how they feel called to use their voices more on the front lines or those who are involved in in lawmaking or or in in social justice causes, etc. And so it's not like exclusive for you know for Christians to sit in the shelf and simply pray. I mean, that's very, very, very important to pray, and we're called to do that. Yeah, I think what we need more than anything is the Christians to engage in political work and service to God and their neighbor, even on local levels. So I want to say this as carefully as I can. 
when we think about our children sometimes, we think about them entering into comfortable middle-class lives, lawyers, doctors, and we honor like firemen and policemen in name. Like we think this is something that politically the Christians like, but like, are we actually saying that I will be happy if my son and my daughter decides I want to be a police officer that serves in particularly impoverished communities. Hmm. So we have this idea that support for these issues simply means the voting block. So I think that we need a revival. And I'm not trying to say that current officers and firemen aren't Christians, so don't hear me saying that. What I'm talking about is the way that we value comfortable lives. Like, are we running for school board? Mm-hmm. Are we running for these local things that actually have a real impact on the lives of people in service to God and our neighbor when the income isn't that much. So you can't retire. My mom was on the school board when I was growing up. So you don't make enough money to live to feed your family being on on the school board or the city council. So it's something that you often do on top of your regular job. And are we willing to engage in that granular work of actually bringing local change and so that's a part of it. So it's not just the Christians protest people who they don't like. It's they actively get involved in transforming their local communities. The other thing that I see here that I think bears noting in this issue of politics and critiquing politicians is in that very passage that you brought up with the Pharisees and the Herodians trying to capture Jesus. You mentioned that they try to put them in a false dichotomy, a false binary to say, Either you are for the rebellion and those who want to violently overthrow Rome, or you're for the Mm. side of the assimilators who just are accepting Roman rule and all of the idolatry that comes with it. And instead, Jesus says, actually, I'm not going to play this game and be for your binaries, which I think says probably something even about our left-right binary and how maybe Christians ought to think about actually elevating a conversation to think Christianly about an issue and not just necessarily according to the party line. All I can say is a hearty amen. I really (laughs) would love for the church to be dangerous again. Mm. And what I mean by that is I want us to be on the side of truth, that nobody thinks they control us and no one Mm -hmm. thinks that they have our votes in their pockets. But they know that if we do something wrong, it's going to be the Christians mm-hmm. who stand against us. And if we do something right, the, the Christians should be our greatest ally. And so what I mean is an unpredictable church is a faithful witness. Mm-hmm. The things that you focus on are going to change from politician to politician. Mm. It really goes back to what we said about, you know, who is imprinted on our beings, you know, yeah. and it's mm-hmm. God's name on our being. And do we represent him in our world. Yeah, I think that at the heart of my own passion is for a king and a kingdom. This is like, um, mm-hmm. this is not a Wheaton commercial, but our uh, motto is for Christ <laughs> kingdom. And so that's what we're about. You're listening to the Discover the Word podcast from Our Daily Bread Ministries with Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, Rasul Berry, and our guest for this episode, Dr. Esau McCauley. We'll continue with a conversation about a Christian theology of policing after this message. As we have these conversations with Dr. Esau McCauley, I'd like to encourage you to check out that award-winning book by Dr. McCauley called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Growing up in the American South, Dr. McCauley knew firsthand the ongoing struggle between despair and hope that marks the lives of some in the African-American context. And a key element in the fight for hope, he discovered, is the practice of Bible reading and interpretation that comes out of traditional black churches. There's a link to where you can order a copy of Reading While Black by Dr. Esau McCauley when you visit discovertheword.org. When you think about what the Bible has to say about policing, like what comes to mind when you hear that that question? Hmm. If I'm honest, I would say nothing. Yes. I mean, I can think of passages about authority, but that term policing, mm-hmm. does it speak about policing? And maybe we even need to say, what does that term actually mean? Well, interestingly enough, I'm glad that you said that because... If you go back and look at a lot of history around ancient Rome, it was the soldiers who did most of the policing work in the city. So what we would consider the military 
also did things like crowd control, investigation of crime. It was actually the Roman soldier who was in charge of policing. When we think about it, it becomes pretty clear. In the New Testament, there's these centurions who just around the area. But you know, there's no active battle going on in Judea. So we don't understand it, but it's simply a matter of fact that Judea in Jesus' day was a police state. Hmm. And the centurions Hmm. were there with the responsibility of keeping order, some who were good and some who were bad. And so you see actually the interactions between the Christian and the soldier are actually not a direct analog, but they're similar to the interactions between policing authorities and civilians in our day. Hmm. I've never noticed that, yeah. So you've actually read a bunch of stories about it. I mean, who arrests Jesus? That's right. Yeah, it's soldiers, right? (laughs) Yeah, there's a bunch of different groups. So the Jewish group had their own kind of malicious linked to the temple. Herod has his own group of people. And then there was the Roman Empire that had their own people. So there was actually a bunch of kind of people with some kind of martial authority in the area. But there is a passage there. If you if you start understanding that the comments around soldiering in the Bible are close analogous to, it's hmm. not the exact same thing. It's close to policing. Hmm. It's actually all over the New Testament. So That means that um, the passages in the Bible that deal with the state and the sword can actually inform what the Bible says about policing, one of which is Romans 13, 1 to 4. So does somebody want to read that? Yeah, I got that. Uh, Romans 13, 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath for the wrongdoer. One of the things that I want to put to the side, even though people love to talk about this when we talk about Romans 13, is the issue of authority and submission. We get it that in this context, Paul is talking about largely the responsibility of the Christian Mm -hmm. to the government. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's fine. We're going to talk about, in this context, though, Paul also talks about what the government is supposed to do. And what he says about what the government is supposed to do actually helps us understand kind of a Christian theology of policing. So one of the things I want to ask you all is, what does Paul say should characterize the actions of the people who are in authority? Especially in verse 3. Yeah, one of the things I notice is it pretty much makes it clear that rulers are supposed to encourage good conduct and punish bad conduct. Yes. But what is the first part when he talks about fear? What does he say about fear? Well, my translation says that rulers hold no terror for those Mm. who do right. Mm. Yes. So when we talk about policing authority, especially as it relates to controversial issues in minority communities, Mm -hmm. one of the main issues is one of fear, right? Hmm. And it's not simply fear for having done something wrong. It's fear when you're innocent. Isn't this like the entire conversation around the talk? Rasul, what's the talk? Yeah, I mean, you know, the talk when you have to talk to your black children, you know, hey, if you're stopped by the police, 10 and 2 on the wheel, don't make any sudden movements for fear that there might be some violence that you inadvertently trigger based on, you know, how you look and how you might be perceived. So what I wanted to get at as it relates to this then is that we can begin to think about a Christian theology of policing. And this may seem pretty basic, but it's a fundamental claim that ethnic minorities have been making for a long period of time, that there is a lot of fear surrounding encounters with police officers. It's one of the things that the Christian can do. They want to say, we want to do a Christian theology of policing. We want to say, how can we create a culture where people who are actually innocent live free of fear? So that's the first thing, I think, as it relates to what this text has to say about a Christian theology of policing. Now, one more question related to this. 
When you hear the sword, what historically has kind of jumped into your mind? He carries the authority to discipline or the authority for war or the authority for using force in some way. So interestingly enough, you went straight to what though? You said war. Hmm. When we think about the emperor bearing the sword, we tend to think of external wars. The emperor is the one who has the right to declare war. But we've already talked about how even in the Bible, the soldiers aren't simply out conquering territory, they're policing societies. So if the emperor bears the sword, it doesn't simply mean that the emperor has the authority to declare a war somewhere. It's actually saying that the emperor has the authority to guide how policing are done in local communities. Now, does the emperor himself go out and like slap people around with the sword? No. No. So what does he do then? Delegates or dispatches. Yeah. He delegates. And this is the important part. He creates the culture. Hmm. The emperor creates the culture in which guilt is punished, right? And innocence is vindicated. Hmm. And so he's talking about, this is what I mean. Paul here is talking about a system of authority. The emperor creates the policy that he then delegates to the soldiers who then carry it out. So he's given the responsibility to the emperor of creating a society in which policing is done in a certain way. So the tension that I'm picking up on this in this passage is Paul's writing about the emperor, he's writing about authority, but he's not writing to the emperor. Yes. It almost feels like one of those books people write about, this is the ideal that things should be like this instead, but it doesn't feel like it carries the weight of actually making a difference because he's not speaking to the emperor in this. Well, I think that there is a difference, and that's what we try to say at the beginning. Let me give you an analogy. We know a lot of the early testimonies that we have about who Jesus is outside of the Christian tradition comes when the person who's writing is talking about something else. So there's a, a writing from the early years of Christianity where one of the people is writing about the fire that Nero started. The writer says, oh yeah, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire mm -hmm. and the Christians are these people. Now, the thing that their author is writing is actually about the fire. But in the context of talking about the fire, we get a very early testimony to Christianity outside of the Bible. Okay. And the only reason he does it is to give context. Mm -hmm. And so you can actually learn something about a person's views even when that's not his primary subject. And so yes, Paul is saying, Christians, these are your responsibilities. But in the context of making that point, he also reveals to you his thinking on how the state should function. Mm, okay. So in the course of making one point, he makes another one. Mm. And so then we are free as Christians to say, oh, I see how Paul thinks a healthy state ought to function. And in a healthy state, the people in charge don't punish the, mm. the innocent. And in a healthy society... The person who is in charge creates a culture of policing that is healthy. Hmm. So we can actually say that the text can bear that meaning, even if that isn't the primary point that Paul is trying to make. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah, and it also sounds like sometimes conversations about authority tend to only focus on the responsibility of those who are being governed. But I think in this text, you're kind of surfacing how in God's sense of governance, that governance is actually responsibility. This is as much of a charge yes. to those who are in authority as it is to those who are being governed. One of the things, and it depends on the translation, but if you look at the beginning of verse three, there's a conjunction, four. There's a four, rulers are this way. So Paul is giving you an ideal. Christians submit because rulers behave in this way. And this is the important part. He talks about the authorities as stewards. God gave them a steward of persons. They don't own them. He's just like, God gave you a job, which is to care for the citizens. Mm -hmm. God chose them for responsibility. This is where you talk about servant leadership. That's what he's articulating there. And so the whole point, though, is that it's inescapable that Paul talks about the culture of policing that he expects the people who are in authority to construct. Yeah, that's a good word. And I think a, a good reminder that we all have responsibility in a kind of organized kind of society to reflect and look at how do we demonstrate God's ideal way of governing that society. And so, yeah, we think that the government is a good instituted by God and 
it's at its best when it's doing the thing that God calls it to do. And there are numerous examples throughout the Old and the New Testament that when that government isn't doing those things well, you have the people whom God sends to remind them of that. So if you think about all of the places in the Old Testament where God sends a prophet to a king and says to the king, you should engage in this kind of behavior, this is the government. And not only does God do this to the people under the covenant, the Jewish covenant, he also does it to foreign nations. Yeah. When you look at things like Isaiah, and there's all of these prophecies about foreign nations, where God is saying, even to non-believing nations, if you don't change your behavior, you're going to be subject to judgment. And so the Christian is called to submit to those who are in authority, but there's a difference between submission and acquiescence. An important distinction in that part of the conversation about policing and a Christian theology of policing. Something that when you think about it has application in basically every culture in every part of the world. Well, you know, the more you read scripture, the more you realize that God deliberately has a way of raising up the low and the downtrodden. There's a power inversion that is a big part of the message of the Bible. And Esau helps us see that in this next segment of Reading Hope with the Black Church. So when you all think about Mary, Jesus's mom, what kind of stuff do you think about? Mm. I mean, usually Christmas comes to mind first. Okay. Christmas? Yep. I think of courage and the bravery to make the decision that was going to alter her life. I mean, sometimes we know the end of the story, and so it waters down the edge of how big it was. But you can count on one finger how many people could legitimately say that I got pregnant and the father is not a human. And yeah. so and she's that one person. <laughs> right. So that's a kind of hard sell. That's Absolutely. kind of hard. History. Yeah. And, you know, I think she is um, in some of our circles so incredibly overlooked. Yes. Mm-hmm. She speaks more and more is said about her than any other woman in the New Testament. Yes. And we don't even think about that. You know, we kind of relegate her to December. Okay, December's Mary's yeah. month and we can have a few words about Mary, you know. But stunningly, we see her before she conceives Jesus as a very young girl and we see her at the foot of the cross as he's being crucified. And that is a very long tenure, the longest tenure we have. She shows up again. The author of Acts, Luke, makes a point to say that the women were with the disciples, including Mary, in the upper room. Yes. And that when the flames of the Spirit came down and they went out and preached, all of them goes out and preached. So Mary's the only person who's there at the birth. Wow. And then she's at Pentecost. I mean, that's an epic. But what I wanted to talk about is Mary's first like extended reflection on God's choice of her hmm. in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. And what I really want to attend to is the things that Mary emphasizes about herself. She's given agency to articulate what she feels like God is up to in and through her and her son. So does somebody want to read Luke 46 to 55? I can start. Um, So this is Luke 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. I hate to be the horrible Bible study teacher, but Uh I just want to stop right there for a second. Okay. This is the important part. What is Mary so excited about as it relates to God's choice of her? The fact that she's lowly? Yeah, Mary understands that God is being glorified by choosing the kinds of person society ignores. Mm-hmm. And so she's saying this reveals something about the kind of God that she serves. So she worships God mm-hmm. precisely yeah. because God chose her. Mm-hmm. So who else was on option for giving birth to Jesus? This might seem like a strange question to ask. We think anybody, of course, it will be Mary, but who could God have chosen? Anybody. I mean, somebody yes. fabulous. The daughter of royalty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is what I mean when, like, oftentimes the oppressed or the ignored or the disinherited people of the world have been drawn to the God of the Bible. Mm. Because God seems to say over and over again, I'm going to get glory by using people who society that Paul says this in first Corinthians, right? God chose the people who were regarded as nothing Mm. to bring to nothing the people who were regarded as something. 
Mm-hmm. And so there's this constant theme through the Bible of God's choice of the not many who are wise, not many who are powerful, not many who are rich. And so this is something that Mary sees in herself, and she glorifies God for it. Mm-hmm. But we can continue on, and then I'll get to the rest later. I'll try not to interrupt You'll anybody interrupt again. You'll interrupt again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in verse um, 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Verse 52, he's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant, Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So what do you see Mary bringing out as she reflects on what God is doing through her and eventually the birth of her son? What is she excited about? It's like social justice. It's like leveling Mm -hmm. the, the field. It's like God fulfilling all the stuff he's been promising. Yeah, and at the beginning, she mentions that he's looked on favor with her and her lowliness, but then she extends that outward as this isn't just something God did for me. This is something God is doing for all people. Mm. There are just two parts I want to highlight if that's okay. She says that he scatters the proud in their inmost thoughts. (laughs) And what she gets at there is this idea that the rich, the powerful, the proud have these schemes about how they're going to build the world to their image. They're going to try to Mm. construct things. So they always have the advantage. So you think about how much the world values power and authority, and then God's going to change the world by a baby who doesn't have power. The other thing that she talks about here is that, once again, it's the inversion. The people who have power are brought down. The people who have lacked power are brought up. One of the amazing things is when Christians start talking about God's concern for the poor or God's opposition to the arrogantly wealthy, we're accused of like being social justice warriors. Where this is not even fancy exegesis. Mary literally says it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so it's sometimes a little bit dangerous to ignore, I think, just the plain teachings of Scripture about how God moves in the world. Yeah, what I hear is... In basic terms, God is rooting for the underdog. <laughs> you know, I'm from Philly, and I remember when the Eagles beat the Patriots. Oh, that's yeah. why yeah, the Patriots yeah. got to be the, the evil empire. Who didn't empire. love that? Come on now. <laughs> that yeah. hurt me. You know, you have this backup quarterback, Nick Foles, oh. who overcomes yeah. Tom Brady when he has his best game, 500 yards passing, breaks mm-hmm. records, and they win anyway. You know what I mean? And there's something in that that I think we all love to see because we realize – Oftentimes the underdog doesn't have mm-hmm. all the benefits or the the assets that those in power do, mm-hmm. and and you don't expect that to win. And there's something about that inversion that makes mm-hmm. us go, yeah, you know, yeah. I knew that could happen. The important part to realize, though, and this and this is the part that I want us to not lose, because verse 55 is important because Mary says, "Just as He promised to our ancestors." And so what she's saying is, when God acts through Jesus to bring about the inversion of power, he's going to do it in keeping with his covenant promises to his people. So God's activity for justice is not separated from the promise that God made that all the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham and his offspring. And so she says that what God's going to do through Jesus, through the inversion of power, is the manifestation of his covenant faithfulness resulting in a universal people who glorify God's name. And so you can draw a direct line between what Mary says about God inverting all of these power structures and keeping mm-hmm. with his promises to what Paul says, like we've spoken about earlier, in places like 1 Corinthians. How can Paul and Mary end up in the same place? Because they're both reading this same Bible hmm. or this same Old Testament that talks about God's promises and God's inverting character. There's one more place that I wanted to highlight. is when you hear this, and this is once again one of these examples where passages get lost. He says, like, God has mm. buried his arm. Like, what does that mean so to you when you hear that? Verse 51, yeah. Verse 51, yeah. he's buried okay. his arm. And mine says he performed mighty deeds with his yes. arm. Yeah. Yes. Interestingly enough, it is an Old Testament phrase. Mm-hmm. So when someone bears their arm, that means he's revealed his strength. It's almost like he's flexed his muscle. Mm. And so there's this idea. You can go and look. God bearing his arm is used over and over again, and it's often related to his acts of deliverance. Mm-hmm. God bears his arm when he brings his people out of Egypt. 
he's going to bear his arm when the Israelites were in Babylon. He's going to bear his arm and rescue them again. And so this idea of bearing God's arm is an evocation of the Exodus story. Mm-hmm. In other words, the same God who acted to redeem Israel, this kind of becomes part of things that God normally does. The same God who brought Israel out of Egypt was going to rescue them from Babylon. And now Mary said the same God who did those things is going to bear his arm again. Mm-hmm. This is the important part. Mary is claiming that we understand something about God from the Exodus narrative that stays with us today. So when you then go and look at the early African-American reading of the Bible, and they were in slavery, and they said, God is going to rescue us. You know why? Because this is the kind of thing that God does. Mm. And so what I'm saying is that when the African-American appropriation of the Exodus tradition is not separable from Mary's evocation of the same thing, it is okay then to look in the Old Testament as a revelation of God's character that then helps us to understand how God works in the world today. Yeah, that's so rich. It reminds me even in Deuteronomy 7 where you know God explicitly says, you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord did not set his affection on you because you were numerous, more numerous than the other peoples, but you were the fewest of all. So yeah. the strength of his arm is actually shown in their weakness. Yes. Um, and that's a key part of the reminder of their selection in the first place. I tell my students all of the time, the Bible actually says over and over again, y'all are the scrubs. (laughs) And that God (laughs) is glorified precisely in your scrubbiness. And there's some freedom in that. (laughs) Because you can have this sense of, I need to achieve this thing to earn God's favor. And I need to do these great things for Jesus. But the Bible actually says the opposite. It's precisely through your inadequacy that God could do great things for you. And he's the one who gets the glory. That's why Paul says that nobody can boast in the presence of God. Hmm. Yeah. I got a chance to see this up close when we went to South Africa and uh, heard about, you know, just the history of apartheid and the sense of delight and joy that people had that God looked upon them in their lowliest state, so to speak, and did this incredible thing of, you know, kind of releasing the bonds of their oppression and, and creating a new nation in which all the people, they call themselves the rainbow nation now. So it wasn't just, okay, we were at the bottom. Now let's be on the top, but it's, we were at the bottom. Let us create a society, which no one's on the bottom. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what we see even in revelation. Mm. One of the things that's amazing about the early African-American Christian tradition is the passage they chose that became central. And it's from the King James Version of Acts 17, 26. It appears in the literature over and over again. And that's the passage that says, from one blood, he has made all of mankind. Hmm. And so when the African-American Christians were talking about freedom, their goal wasn't simply vengeance. Their goal was to say, no, the Bible speaks about the possibility of universal brotherhood. And so they said, yes, we want God to liberate us. This is true, the Exodus story. But they also said on the other side of that liberation is the possibility of us being one family in Christ. A beautiful insight into a church tradition that uh, many may not be familiar with. From one blood, he has made all humanity. God's been calling his children to that kind of unity since the very beginning. And it's something that we should keep pursuing at every opportunity. Well, Reading Hope with the Black Church is what this Discover the Word podcast is about, and we'll wrap it up with a conversation about anger in a moment. Esau asks, Is it okay for Christians to be angry? An unlikely psalm that gives some perspective after this word about our next podcast. On the next Discover the Word podcast, Daniel leads Mart and Elisa and Bill in some conversations about the subject of justice. We have so many thoughts, ideas, pictures, movies, assumptions, expectations (laughs) related to this word justice. And our culture has a whole lot to say about justice and uses that term a lot. Mm -hmm. But I realized I have spent very little time actually exploring just different scriptures that use the word justice and how the, the word is used. So I thought it might be good for at least me (laughs) to spend some time just reading a bunch of verses in the next uh, series of conversations Hmm. that use the word justice. So are you all up for that? Does that sound fun? What does the Bible say about justice? 
That's our next subject on the Discover the Word podcast. And now the conclusion of our conversations with Dr. Esau McCauley. So when you all think about um, anger or processing anger, what comes to mind? Honestly, my first thought is suppressing anger Mm. in order to be considered acceptable. Like, okay, anger, ooh, that's bad. Let me put that Mm -hmm. someplace where I can control myself so it doesn't get out of control. Mm. Yeah. I'm a producer on a podcast that Our Daily Bread does called God Hears Her. And there's been a lot of conversations that Elisa, who's one of the hosts on there, and then Aaron, her co-host, have talked about Mm -hmm. emotions. Mm -hmm. And I think a little differently about emotions now after hearing so many of those conversations, because they keep talking them as like these signposts of what's really going on, these indicator lights of what's going on. And so I think, Rasul, to your point, I feel pressure to sometimes hide anger and not feel like I can express it. But in some ways, it has been like an alert to, wow, there's something really going on that I need to pay attention to. One of the things that's a little bit tricky, especially when it deals with issues of race and reconciliation, and there's this rush, this idea that we should forgive. Mm-hmm. And it's always in the media. You know, there's a murder and the person forgives the, you know, the accuser. And we say, isn't this a wonderful picture of the gospel? And, and it is. Like, like, I don't want to downplay the people's decision to forgive. But sometimes that skips over the emotional journey that people go on. And it makes it seem like the only proper Christian response is to arrive at that place relatively quickly. Yeah, you saw it. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, a friend of mine and from African descent, African-American, and I remember one time there was a story like that in the post that I saw that she put on Facebook is I'm so tired of the focus on black grace yeah, without allowing us to process the anger that we feel before that. And I remember calling her and talking to her about that because I didn't understand what she meant because I thought grace should be celebrated but she was talking exactly about what you are. This idea that we often try to move past it quickly Mm -hmm. without actually dealing with that. And you're really bringing up a specific or a more specific kind of anger. You know, this is not like I'm frustrated that my kids aren't listening to me. This is a different level of anger that I think you're right. We want to push past instead of staying with. And I'm wondering where you're going to do with that. I want to say a couple of things. One of the problems with the rush to forgiveness is because sometimes the people who like laud the forgiveness also will downplay the thing that makes us angry. Mm-hmm. And so like there's a dual thing that's happening. Well, the African-American complaint about injustice isn't that bad. And here is the forgiveness. And so then the only space we're left with is we deny our experiences. And then we for, when, when there is literally a counterfactual, we forgive. Mm-hmm. And so that just leaves people with a lack of emotional space. And the reason I want to talk about this anger is not because I want to justify anger. Howard Thurman has this idea. He says that anger once kindled rarely like only burns down its intended target. It tends to burn everything down around it. So once you have this anger in your heart, it's rare that you can just direct it towards one person. You bring that anger home with you. And everybody understands this, right? You have a bad day at work. And then if you can't process that, you come home and you take it out on the people who you love. And so Thurman talks about the need for African-Americans to get past their anger. But the reason he says that is because of its own destructive power in the lives of people. So what I do want to do is I want to highlight at least one passage in the Bible that deals with or that reflects on the anger that sometimes people feel. And that's Psalm 137. Does somebody want to read that? I'll start it. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there, our captors asked for our songs our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Wow. 
the end of that we're going to get to. So I know it's hard mm. not to start yeah. there. Mm-hmm. But does anyone know the context into which this psalm is written? Yeah, it's the, uh, exile. Yeah. You know, they're being sent in captivity uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Yeah. Now, we know enough about ancient and modern warfare. What happens when cities are sacked? They plundered. You know, the people are taken, their possessions are taken. There's also acts of cruelty and murder. Mm-hmm. So it's not mm-hmm. simply that they're plundered. So normally you take the healthiest and the people who are likely to survive the journey into exile. The ones who are sick or who are weak or too young, they kill on the spot. Or abuse them. Mm-hmm. Or abuse them. Mm-hmm. And so this is probably physical and emotional trauma that they saw. And now they've then arrived at the edge of Babylon. And now their captives are asking them to sing. Do you see how disrespectful this is? Mm. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Imagine, this, and this is not to be flippant. This is hard to imagine. Let's say Canada comes in and they conquer the United States and they take us off up into Canada. And then they say, sing America the Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that is not just physical trauma. This is now psychological trauma. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And this refusal to sing, it's like the last act of protest that is available to the exiles. In verse 4, where they're saying, how can we sing the songs? Yeah, How can you do it? We refuse to sing. In other words, they're saying, we refuse to pretend like these things that happen to us aren't there. The whole point is suppress your anger. Mm-hmm. Pretend like you're okay with what is occurring to you and sing us the songs. And so what they're saying is, we refuse to participate in the farce that denies the trauma that we feel. What I say to people is this is a window into the idea that it's okay for us to, like, declare our emotions to God. Hmm. Because this is recorded in Scripture. Why is this passage still here? This passage is trauma literature. Mm. And so the reason that it is in the Bible is to serve as a memory and a testimony to the people who suffered these things, who then had this frustration. And this is the reason why when you get to the very end, the most damaging part of it, the hardest part for us to read, is the very end. When we hear this idea, happy shall be the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the stone. Mm. There's a sense in which we can't imagine this as Christian literature. Yeah, that's right. But then you got to ask the question, why do they say this? It's because they saw someone most likely take their baby and murder it against the rock. Mm -hmm. So this is trauma literature. And it will be simply dishonest to assume that like you've seen your baby murdered and you're offering a prayer to God that prayer isn't going to be something close to this. Can we just pause there just for, this is so significant. And just even this phrase, Esau, this is trauma literature. Psalm 137 is trauma literature. I just want to highlight that with a giant Mm -hmm. highlighter and say all who are listening, all who are at this table with us, who've experienced trauma, your pain is seen. It's recognized, and we have a God who bends to be with us in it. Thank you, Esau. That is just stunning. Woody Jennings talks about, in his book, The Christian Imagination, about the scene where on the slave auction blocks, the cries of the mothers when their babies Mm. are ripped for them and sold, and they were screaming for their children. And we don't have a record of those psalms. But the question is, well, what kind of psalms would they write? Yeah, And so the important part about this is not that God says, yes, I'm going to smash the baby's heads. That's not what's going on here. What I think it is, if we can't give the entirety of our emotions to God, who can we give them to? Yeah. And if we think that there aren't people who've experienced real trauma, who need to articulate that trauma to God in prayer, then we're being dishonest about the human experience. And so the question of where the rage goes, it goes to God. Hmm. I resonate. And I think even as a practice of devotion, when I'm in a place of emotional angst or hardship or just dread, I go to the Psalms. Mm -hmm. And particularly, I think of this one, I think of Psalm 13 that says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Mm -hmm. How long? And the thing that's interesting is he doesn't say, have you forgotten me? He says, how long will you continue to forget me? Yeah. And we have to remember, this is poetry, and it's supposed to invoke those deepest parts of our emotions that are not analytical and primarily didactic in their orientation. It's raw emotion, and that's something that 
it's not theologically sound in the strictest sense. Sure. But the tension is in the poetry itself. And this is what I mean. By virtue of the fact that the author is praying to the God of the Bible, he knows that the God of the Bible hasn't forgotten him. Mm-hmm. That's right. Like he knows that. Like it's impossible for God to forget him. But he's saying to the God who exists outside of time, who remembers all things, how long would you forget me? Because he's articulating what he experiences. Now, a lot of those songs resolve themselves in, right. but I will trust in your goodness. Some of them don't. Yep. And the reason I say that's important is it's okay to end at different points depending on your experience. Mm-hmm. Some psalms go, but I surely I will trust to see the Lord, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Other psalms end with like, darkness is my only companion. Mm-hmm. But even when the psalm says, darkness is my only companion, as long as it's articulated as a prayer to God, it is itself a manifestation of hope. Mm. And so what I'm trying to articulate is the expression of our frustration to God remains a good thing. And the Christian is only dangerous when that anger ceases to be articulated to God and then it is simply directed at our neighbor. A great way to conclude these conversations about reading hope with the black church with Dr. Esau McCauley. We hope that in this series, Esau has given you some insight into biblical passages that has demonstrated their importance in nurturing hope throughout the African-American Christian experience. And once again, our conversations have helped you discover how engaging with believers from different cultural backgrounds can offer us greater understanding of Scripture than we could acquire alone. Well, Discover the Word is about discovering the life-changing wisdom of the Bible together with you. And these podcasts are made possible thanks to the voluntary support of friends like you. If you'd like to support this ministry, there are at least a couple of ways you can do that, either by giving a one-time donation or by giving an automatic monthly gift as a Discover the Word partner. It's easy to give when you go online to our discovertheword.org website and click the Donate button. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.